Russia's war in Ukraine has killed thousands while displacing millions of Ukrainians. For many Western journalists, the war made it untenable to report from Russia amid a crackdown on independent journalism. Today's guest has seen Russia up close, reporting there first for the Washington Post and now as the bureau chief for the New York Times. He's Anton Troyanovsky this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by Anton Troynovsky, the Moscow Bureau Chief for the New York Times. He joins us today from Istanbul, Turkey. Anton, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So there's a ton that we want to talk to you about today, but I think we want to really begin with uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, so we're just going to dive right in. Do you have a sense of what Russia's war aims are? Uh, we're, we're, we're taping this now here in the first week of May uh, 2022. Do you have a sense of what Russia is really trying to achieve with its war in Ukraine? The honest answer is everyone is trying to figure out what Russia is trying to achieve. Even the you know smartest experts in Russia don't really know. The official officially declared goals uh, by Putin are, as you know, quote unquote, demilitarizing and denazifying Ukraine. Uh, but that is an extremely vague um, uh, term. And what it seems to do is give Putin the flexibility potentially to declare victory um, at some point. What we do expect, though, and what's become clear right now is Russia is trying to take control of as much territory as it can in eastern Ukraine, um, where you have the, the greatest uh, Russian-speaking population. But that's slow going, as we can talk about later. So short answer is um, clearly Putin is trying to expand his influence in Ukraine, trying to stop Ukraine's westward uh, uh, orientation. Um, but tactically on the ground, what Russia is trying to achieve remains unclear. Were, were you surprised uh, by, uh, you know, we had a, a, a buildup. It seemed like there might have been a war last spring. Um, we saw a buildup in forces over the last uh, several months of 2021. Were you surprised when, uh, when Russia actually invaded? Um, you know, the, the days coming up to the invasion, it seemed quite clear that it was going to happen. But um, if you take it at the, the months ahead of that, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, people who follow Russia closely, people who live in Russia, uh, found it essentially unimaginable that um, Putin would go ahead with this just because it seemed like such a radical departure from this more careful, uh, incremental approach that he had taken to foreign policy. Um, you know, it was it was just a, a massive um, uh, uh, step that was, yeah, it was really hard to imagine. Do you, do you have any sense of what changed his calculus? Um, that's the other thing that 
you know, people are really trying to figure out. It seems pretty clear at this point that he was getting um, his picture of the situation on the ground in Ukraine was very different from reality. He seemed to genuinely expect um, a large portion of the Ukrainian military to lay down their arms and not resist the Russians. He expected, uh, it really seems, uh, President Zelensky to fall. He appeared to expect there to be infighting um, in the senior ranks of the Ukrainian government. And presumably, he expected to, his military to presume uh, to perform better than it did. Um, so that seems to be the kind of information that he had that on a tactical level led him uh, to go ahead with the invasion. But then on the big picture level, um, you know, he has this belief that he clearly continues to hold that Russia has this kind of great power destiny uh, to control great swaths of, of Eastern Europe. And he believes himself to be uh, uh, pursuing uh, that, that destiny that Russia has. So what happened to Russia's military? I think, you know, when this began in, in, in late February, some observers at least thought that, you know, the Russian military was, was a mighty force and that one way or another, this would be over relatively soon. Cer certainly not continuing into May with, with no end in sight. What, ha what happened to this mighty military? One of the most stunning things about this, what we've heard from soldiers on the ground, is that so many of them, the Russian soldiers who were sent to Ukraine, had no idea that they were about to enter a war basically until they started being shot at. Um, you know, we know that a great number of soldiers uh, were told they were being sent to uh, military exercises in Belarus or in Crimea or in uh, Western Russia. And, um, you know, they, they even until the last minute, uh, as they were getting on the tanks to, for instance, cross from Belarus into, into Ukraine, um, we've been told even at that point, many soldiers didn't realize they were entering a war zone. Um, and it seems partly, quite likely, uh, a consequence of uh, the Russian leadership expecting there to be much less resistance than there really was. It seems to be a consequence of Putin uh, in his kind of ex-KGB mindset trying to keep his plans as secret as possible, even from his own people. Um, but, you know, that was a really remarkable thing that, of course, had a big impact on morale. Uh, when you ask about what happened to the Russian military, we clearly see their morale is much lower than, than on the other side. Um, and um, overall, the, the war machine uh, that Putin has spent so many uh, billions of dollars of Russia's oil wealth on is not as, uh, as fearsome as, as we believe. So one result has been, you know, an extraordinary number of Russian casualties, both in terms of soldiers dead and soldiers injured. Uh, did that surprise, do you think that surprised the Kremlin? And, and how is that being received by people back home, by, by Russians back in, in Russia? It, again, I think this yeah. was, was not a predicted outcome by any means. And then, then the next question would be, what do they do now? But start with, with the reaction and how this could possibly have happened. Well, um, you're right. Um, one, <laughs> one, one reason it seems that the, we know for sure the casualties are, are, the casualty count is really bad from Russia's point of view is that they haven't 
released any casualty numbers in more than a month, um, if, if, as far as I can recall. Um, so they're not telling their own people how many Russian soldiers have been killed or injured. Uh, and they are trying very hard, uh, as we can discuss later, to keep Russians from learning the truth um, about what's going on. I, that's the question I want to follow up on. The, the, so Russia has passed a law basically criminalizing, uh, referring to the special military operation in Ukraine as anything other than a special military operation. Uh, uh, opposition leader Vladimir Karamurza has been uh, imprisoned and charged with violating that, uh, as have others. Um, so what do the Russian people actually know about the war? And what, to what lengths is the government willing to go to try to lock that down? So um, those who watch TV and rely on television to get their information, which is something like half of the population, at least, if not more, uh, believe that um, or see that their country is having success at liberating uh, Ukrainian territory, as Russian TV puts it. They are told that um, Russia is essentially fighting NATO in Ukraine and that NATO is, uh, you know, forcing the Ukrainians to fight against Russia. Um, they are being told that the Ukrainians are, are Nazis and that there are apparently more Nazis than expected in Ukraine. That's kind of how this idea of why are the Ukrainians resisting so much is spun. The Russians are saying, well, they're just even more Nazi than, than we thought is the message. Um, and uh, they are not hearing any, anything about Russian war crimes in Bucha or elsewhere. They're told that Russia only targets uh, military infrastructure and is trying to minimize all casualties. It's basically the diametric opposite of what you know our, our viewers are, are seeing and in most cases very far from the truth. So that, that is one segment of the Russian population, but there's another segment that is not buying what they're seeing. I mean, you know, look, we, we live in 2022. It's impossible to stop the flow of information around the planet and the globe. So there are clearly people who do not buy that. Do you have any sense of, of what they are thinking and what they might want? And, and then we can get into protests. There have been very limited protests, but I've, I've thrown a lot out there if you can address that. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Absolutely. A lot of Russians also don't support this. Um, the polls, there are polls out there that show that maybe a quarter don't support the war, but it's very hard to trust any polling coming out of Russia right now, given how repressive the environment has become. Um, Russians do have alternative sources of information. You know, even after all of the crackdown on independent media, the Russian uh, uh, media environment is not as uh, tightly controlled as the one in China, for example. Uh, Russians can access foreign websites for the most part. Uh, they can, um, Facebook and Instagram have been blocked, but you can get around that if you use a VPN. Telegram is one social network that's very popular there that has not been blocked where you can get all kinds of information. The problem, of course, is quality control. And there are really very few independent Russian media outlets that have broad trust in the population. But the Russians who are still in Russia that I've talked to who don't support the war, again, there are many, but they just 
they're saying, what can they do? You know, if you, if you say one word in, in your university class against the war, for example, you very easily could be expelled. If you uh, go outside and hold up a sign that just says peace or no to war by yourself, that can be enough to get you arrested and potentially uh, thrown in jail for 15 years under this new law. Um, they don't, you know, they, they, the, the, the Russians who are there who don't support the war, there's many of them, but they're really at a great loss as to what to do. And hundreds of thousands have left the country. So let's let's turn to Ukraine now. You mentioned Zelensky before, and, and I think it's fair to say that Putin was extraordinarily surprised at the leadership of, of this person who came to power, became a politician after being an actor and a comedian. Talk about Zelensky. Has what he has done in terms of his leadership, and not just in Ukraine, but in, in rallying much of the West, has that, did that surprise you? And, and talk about Zelensky himself. Well, what I find most fascinating about Zelensky in the context of this war is that he's really just the kind of Ukrainian who, in Putin's eyes, should want to have close ties with Russia. Zelensky is a native Russian speaker. He's from the southeastern part of Ukraine that's historically been very close to Russia. He made his whole career as a comedian um, speaking Russian. He spent a lot of time in Moscow. Uh, his hit shows were all in Russian. He's really been part of and was always part of that kind of greater post-Soviet media environment. But what I think Putin clearly did, doesn't get, didn't get about him and what many in the Russian uh, elite who did, don't get is that people like that in Ukraine can still be pro-Western. You know, uh, Zelensky carries that Identity as someone who grew up in the Soviet Union and speaks Russian, but he that doesn't mean that he wants to be, you know, an ally of of, of the Kremlin uh, for 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 the rest of his life, uh, you know, or for the rest of uh, Ukraine's future. So um, that's one really important thing that he represents here. I think also to Ukrainians, this idea that you can. Uh, come from any part of the country in Ukraine. You can speak any language, whether it's Ukrainian or Russian, and uh, still, you know, resist uh, this invasion and still want to be part of the West. And absolutely, in Russia, everybody, you know, on the in state media expected him to flee the country as soon as the first shot was fired. And the fact that he not only fled, but has been rallying his people day by day uh, in his videos and also rallying the West and, and really much of the world has been uh, a very, very important factor, I think, in how this war has unfolded. Anton, you mentioned the law in Russia criminalizing uh, sort of truth-telling, for lack of a better expression. Uh, but it has had the effect of essentially shuttering most, if not all, of the independent news sources uh, in Russia itself. And it's made it difficult for Western journalists to report uh, from Russia as well. How has that affected your ability with the New York Times uh, to operate and report on events in Russia? So after that law was signed by Putin in early March, we made the decision to 
uh, pull our staff out of our reporting staff out of Russia temporarily because uh, it just uh, was the kind of thing where we needed to assess the impact of that law and to make sure that we could continue to cover uh, Russia without, of course, making compromises. Um, and so for the last two months, we have been uh, reporting about Russia from outside the country. And, uh, you know, I've been spending uh, so much of my time just on the phone with people back in Russia and uh, trying to understand from afar what's going on. But we are committed to staying there, um, to having a presence there long term. So, um, you know, we've been on the ground. The New York Times has had an on the ground presence in Russia since uh, actually um, the early 1920s. Uh, we were there throughout the Cold War, and we we are committed to 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 being there in the future. But of course, the safety of our staff is is our our, our our top priority. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Moscow Bureau Chief for the New York Times, Anton Troyanovsky. You can find Anton on Twitter at Anton Troyan. I'm going to spell that. It's A-N-T-O-N-T-R-O-I-A-N. -N -T so we were talking about Zelensky, but he, this was not a solo, it's not been, is not a solo act by him. He obviously has the support of, of the Ukrainian people. And the military, I think, has surprised a lot of people as well, the Ukrainian military. Talk about that and how they have been so effective. I mean, they basically have restricted this war to the eastern part of Ukraine now. When, when it began, it would, you know, I, some people, I think, assumed Kyiv would fall very quickly. P Putin may well have thought that as well. Didn't happen at all. Talk about how ingenious and effective the Ukrainian military has been. Um, so first of all, I think we have to keep in mind that in, there's a lot we still don't know about how the war unfolded, uh, you know, and in the fog of war, a lot of things that seem true at first uh, turn out not to be true. So I, I do always try to be really careful in, in, in kind of trying to understand what, what, what do we really know. But there's no question, yeah, absolutely, uh, the, the, the defense of Kiev by the Ukrainian forces in those early days uh, of the war turned out to be critical, uh, preventing uh, those uh, Russian airborne teams that were sent in uh, just as the war was starting from uh, getting into Kiev, capturing key buildings, uh, you know, the government center uh, was, was crucial. Um, and now, of course, they're continuing to resist. I mean, you know, th th this is a war where Russia invaded uh, Europe's second largest country with a force of something like 200,000, less than the Ukrainian uh, uh, force, um, which, you know, is just really shows that they didn't expect the Ukrainians really to resist. 
And uh, the fact that they have and, and continue to do so, you know, has, has made the, the, the difference here. Um, and then it went in, talk, in terms of the Ukrainian people, I think also, you know, you, you see how this war has, has united Ukrainians. It's been quite a fractured country for a long time. Um, again, not just about language, but also uh, political orientation, economically, um, and uh, this this war has 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 united Ukrainians and in, in a way that's really shocked, I think, uh, a lot of people in Russia. One of the things, one of the aspects of this <clears throat> war that I would argue is is a, a change and perhaps and probably a profound change from previous wars, wherever they happen to have been, is the imagery from satellites, from cell phones on the ground, from people from the New York Times doing amazing video and, and other outlets, of course, too, and stories and images. You know, we're flooded with these images, and I don't mean to minimize that because it really brings home the brutality of this war. Talk about that. I mean, this, am I correct in saying that this is, this is a new era, in, in, at least from the West, watching a war or learning about it? Yeah, I think um, even, you know, you saw that during the buildup uh, to the war, um, the all those TikTok videos that were coming in of uh, Russian tanks uh, being shipped uh, across the country on, on railroad cars. Um, and now, absolutely, you know, you get this granular detail, these drone, this drone footage, cell phone footage, uh, et cetera, of what's happening on the battlefield um, in a really remarkable way. And, of course, what you have to be careful about then when you see that is always to keep in mind that, well, you're seeing this, but you're not seeing everything um, that's going on. So that is where our, our role as journalists comes in uh, to kind of give people the big picture uh, beyond what you're seeing on, on, on Twitter and elsewhere. Do, do you have any sense of how many people from the New York Times are in one way or another covering this, editing this, producing this? I, I'm, it's got to be dozens of people. I, I read the paper religiously, and, and every day there's, there's something new and, and intriguing and in some cases horrifying, but always instructive. Give me a sense of what's happening yeah. at the Times. It's it's a huge it's absolutely a huge effort. I don't think they can get into numbers, but we have you know a number of people on the ground in Ukraine, um, in Poland. Uh, we have uh, obviously dozens of, of foreign bureaus um, around the world where everybody is involved in working together and covering the story from all kinds of angles, um, and the huge staff you know, in our editing hubs in New York and London and Seoul that gives us the ability to really cover this war with the 24-hour uh, kind of approach. Hey, Anton, some of your uh, reporting of late has focused on, uh, well, for lack of a better expression, the, some of the opposition to, to Putin. For American audiences who maybe aren't uh, as well-versed as you in what it means to have a Russian oligarch uh, who are these people? What role do they play in Russian society? And do they actually offer any sort of resistance to Putin? Yeah, that's been one of the most fascinating things to watch is what's going on with uh, the Russian billionaires who, you know, profited immensely uh, in Russia and in some cases from their connections to Putin, but who also 
in some cases aren't very comfortable being associated with uh, uh, now with a president who's invaded a neighboring country and in other cases are seeing their whole fortunes uh, evaporate as a result of Western sanctions. These are people who, you know, spent much of their time in places like London, Switzerland, Italy, the south of France, etc. So um, most of these people have said very little or have offered very kind of cautious protests uh, 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 statements of, of, of criticism about the war. Um, one fascinating thing that happened the other day on Sunday is I interviewed a uh, Russian uh, banking uh, tycoon who founded one of Russia's biggest banks, really one of the only truly self-made entrepreneurs in Russia. He was worth $9 billion um, uh, late last year, and he spoke out fiercely uh, uh, against the war. And that led to his um, uh, uh, business being essentially taken away from him. Uh, he told me that the Kremlin uh, ordered uh, his company, told his company that it had to cut ties with him and uh, make um, uh, make him sell his business. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that can happen uh, to people who who uh, come out in opposition. So you don't have a crystal ball. We don't have a crystal ball. Nobody does. We're not inside the Kremlin. We're not inside uh, Vladimir Putin's head. But do you have any sense of how this ends? One key thing to see is what happens in the next couple weeks. Does Putin escalate? Um, he still has not mobilized uh, Russia broadly to fight this war. Uh, for instance, there's an annual um, conscription cycle, an annual draft where Russian men under 27 are required to serve one year in the military. Um, when that one-year cycle ended in April, Putin let those uh, draftees, those conscripts, go back to their regular lives. He didn't keep them in the army to potentially go join this war effort. So for now, the um, Putin actually... You know, for all the horrors of the war, he's he's still been kind of limiting how much um, uh, how deeply Russian society is involved in this. So what we're really watching is, does he escalate? Does he end up calling for a draft, um, mobilizing more reserves? Uh, one date to watch is May 9th, when Russia celebrates uh, the Soviet victory over Nazi Germany. Um, on that day, Putin typically gives a big speech, and there is a lot of speculation that he might announce some kind of official state of war or a mass mobilization uh, on that day. Um, but, you know, for now, the war is kind of, it's grinding, you know, uh, along. There isn't a ton of movement on the front line. Western officials are saying that the Russians are being quite cautious and, and, and tepid right now on that front in eastern Ukraine. So... Um, to answer your question, no, I don't know how it ends. Uh, it's hard to imagine a peace agreement right now, um, but it, it feels like there's quite a strong likelihood that this kind of grinds on uh, for, for months, uh, potentially. Uh, Anton, we are so grateful to you for the time and for your reporting uh, from Moscow. He's Anton Trinovsky. That's all the time we have this week. But if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time 
For more story in the public square.